You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and He calls us to preach the Word and proclaim His Gospel. We pray that as you listen, you will be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Let me ask, when was the last time you felt powerless? The question that you guys asked each other before, I wonder what you said. We'll get through it in a moment, but I wonder, would you believe me if I said that I've seen an evil spirit? Would you believe me if I said that I've seen an evil spirit? It was about 15 years ago, actually. I was back in Penang in Malaysia to visit my family. And when I arrived, I noticed something wasn't right. Everyone was acting just a little bit strange, and I quickly discovered that my cousin wasn't well. In fact, according to my family, he was possessed by an evil spirit. Now, to be honest, I didn't quite believe it when I first heard it. I've grown up in Melbourne my whole life. Not every day here that you see someone spiritually possessed. Until you do his body contorted, his voice changed, his eyes flickered, he screamed and shrieked and the voice that spoke didn't sound like this. And can I tell you in that moment, my 21st century post-enlightenment Western worldview was kind of going a bit of haywire, right? But what, here's the, even the weirder part, while I was trying to make sense of what I was seeing, our Indonesian housekeeper wasn't faith at all. She, she looked at me and said, oh, this isn't, well, she didn't say this to me, I can't understand Indonesian, right? But she said, this isn't strange. This happens all the time, back in my kampong, my, in my village. And I'm just standing there going, this doesn't make any sense at all. It, it's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, in Australia, it's crazy to believe the supernatural. We wouldn't say it publicly, would we? I mean, we don't believe in magic and fairy tales. No, we're educated. We're advanced. And extremely arrogant. Because 84% of the entire world population actually believe in a spiritual reality. So if you're a pure materialist, if you believe that this world is nothing more than atoms and molecules, then you're on the wrong side of the world. You're on the wrong side of history. You know, most cultures in our world are ruled by fear and power. They're gripped by fear of evil spirits and grasp for power over them. Maybe you've seen people, people that you know, maybe your own parents or family, friends, gripped by that fear and power worldview. I'll tell you how you can tell, right? They, they set up a statue in their house to ward off evil spirits. They pay thousands of dollars for a strange man to rearrange their furniture to bring good luck. They burn paper money hoping against all hope to give their dead relatives something, just anything in the afterlife. Now, our world, it's gripped by fear. Last week, we restarted our journey through Mark's Gospel, didn't we? And we sought to answer that question, what king is this? What kind of king is Jesus? And we saw that Jesus is the beloved Son of God and the suffering Son of Man. We saw something of His glory and something of His love. And today, in the second half of Mark 9, we're going to see something of his power. What kind of king is Jesus? Let me tell you. 
He is the king with the power over every spirit. He is the king with power over life and death. Now, for those of you taking notes, you'll be glad to know it's a classic sermon today. Three points each starting, starting with P. The problem, the prayer, and the power. There you go. Number one, the problem. I have to tell you, uh, when I was looking at my cousin who was spiritually possessed, I felt terrified. I felt powerless. This was a problem so out there, so otherworldly, that let's face it, none of us knew what we were doing. None of us had the power to fix it. We did everything that we could. We called our friends to, we called his friends to reason with him, doctors to treat him, the local Pentecostal pastor to exercise him, but whatever we tried simply didn't work. No one had the power. It's something of the situation of the disciples here in chapter 9. They're confronted with a problem so dark that they had no power to fix it. What happens? Verse 14, Jesus and his three disciples come down the mountain of glory. And where do they go? They descend into the depths of spiritual darkness. And when they arrive, they see the other disciples arguing with the scribe as a whole crowd looks on. And as soon as the crowd sees Jesus, what do they do? They run to him in amazement, probably hoping that this man will fix the unfixable, that this man has the power to solve the unsolvable. So Jesus asks them, what are you arguing about with them? But, but before they can respond, a father calls out from among the crowd and he tells Jesus about his son. You see, just like my cousin, this young boy is possessed by an evil spirit. But unlike my cousin, who would shriek and scream, no, this boy is rendered entirely mute and entirely deaf. The, the sheer extent of this boy's possession, possession is so terrifying and it strikes fear into the heart of his father. Verse 18, whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. See, if you live in a fear-power world, you can't get more fearful than this. The problem here isn't merely physical, is it? No, it's not even mental, it's not even emotional. No, Mark tells us this problem is spiritual. There is a dark, wicked, demonic and satanic power that has possessed this boy. If you were his father, if you were his mother, how would you feel? I can tell you, I'd feel, I'd feel terrified. I would feel powerless. I would wonder to myself, who in the world can free my son from a power so dark and so demonic? Who has the power to defeat evil itself? And then, and then you hear of a man named Jesus. That this man is traveling around, healing the sick, casting out demons, proclaiming the kingdom of God and the end of evil. And you think to yourself, maybe, just maybe he has the power. Maybe Jesus has the power to save my son. So, so you search him out and you can't find him. Well, apparently he's up the mountain, but you find his disciples instead. You find the disciples who, back in chapter 6, had driven out many demons before. 
So you think to yourself, well, they've done it before. Surely they can do it again. If they did it for that man's son, surely they can do it for my son. Just picture it. You bring your son to the disciples of Jesus. You plead with them, please heal him. Please drive out this demon. And then one of the disciples, in great confidence, great power and great faith, comes to your son, extends his hand and says, too long have you sat in the shadows. I release you. Nothing happens. Maybe you've seen videos like this, people performing miracles. Let me do it again. Nothing happens. I'll come back later. Maybe then it will happen. But still, nothing happens. The evil spirit is still there. See, if this mute spirit could speak, he would simply laugh and say, you have no power here. Verse 18 ends with these powerless words. I asked your disciples to drive it out. But they couldn't. Literally, they did not have the power. So as a father, here you are. Your son is gripped by the darkest of spiritual powers and there seems to be no greater power that can set him free. Surely you'd feel terrified. Surely you'd feel powerless. And surely we've all confronted problems like that, haven't we? Maybe not exactly like this, I hope not, surely. But problems that we simply haven't had the power to overcome. Could have been a physical injury, a mental illness, but let's face it, the worst of problems feel far darker than that, don't they? The worst of problems feel like there's something even spiritual about them. As if the whole world is set against us, as if no one has the power to change our lives or to save us. That's the sort of problem that this father is facing. But it's not just the father, is it? It's not just him who has a problem. No, Jesus' disciples, they have a much bigger problem. Why, why can't they drive out this evil spirit? Oh, they did it back in chapter 6, didn't they? So what were they doing then that they aren't doing now? Why do now they not have the power? And it's right there in verse 18. They do not have the power because they do not have faith. They do not have power because they do not have faith. You see, friends, faith lies at the heart of this passage. Let me step you through it, keep your Bibles open. In verse 19, Jesus calls the people an unfaithful generation. In verse 23, he says, everything is possible for the one who has faith. And in verse 24, the father cries out, I do have faith, help my faithlessness. You see, Mark has written these events, he's put them together so that you and I might have faith in the king over life and death. And that's exactly what the scribes, the crowds and Jesus' own disciples simply do not have. In verse 19, Jesus calls them an unbelieving or an unfaithful, a faithless generation. Just think about it. This entire generation, they, they get to personally see God in human flesh, but still, they do not believe. In staff meeting, we were looking at this earlier this week, and we normally go through this Swedish method and ask each other, what's one observation that you can draw from this passage? Maybe in your BLTs this week, this is what you're going to do. And Joseph looked at these verses and said, Jesus seems so done with them. 
And maybe that's the case. I mean, he knows that the clock is ticking, but their faith is not growing. And now the father cries out to Jesus. He prays to Jesus. And his prayer is like a mirror to our own faith. It reveals a faith that is mixed with doubt. Let's look at verse 22. If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. The, the Father is asking that Jesus might come to rescue and is asking that Jesus might come in compassion. Notice he's praying for the external and the internal. He's praying not just that Jesus might work on the outside, but that he might feel deeply on the inside. That, that he won't just move his hands in help, but that he might move his heart in love. The Father is pleading with Jesus not just for rescue. He's pleading with him for relationship. It's a beautiful prayer. It is almost, almost a model prayer. Because notice the crucial caveat. Three words. If you you see, the father struggles to believe that Jesus can actually save. He, he struggles to see that Jesus actually might have the power and Jesus picks up on those three words. I just love it. If you can, if you can, no, 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 no. Everything is possible for the one who believes. And you're like, that's the moment where if you highlight your Bible, you're taking out a highlighter going, yes, everything is possible for the one who believes. Now, hold up, right? Let's just be clear about what Jesus isn't saying first. He's not saying that if we have enough faith, we can somehow achieve whatever we want. That somehow faith uncaps our human capacity. Just think about it. We, we might have faith in the wrong object. That'd be tragic. We might wrongly assume God's will. Or surprise, surprise, God might choose not to answer the prayer as we want. Think about this in 2 Corinthians 12. The Apostle Paul prays three times that God will remove a thorn from his flesh. Three times. But God chooses to leave it there. He says no, so that Paul might see the sufficiency of his grace. We read 2 Corinthians 12 and we go, oh, Paul, Paul, my dear Paul, you just didn't have enough faith. Now, I suspect he did. But faith isn't a formula. It's the great mistake of faith healers who claim if only you have enough faith, then God will always heal your sickness. Now, that totally misunderstands the nature of faith and do not believe it for a minute. The value of faith is not in its strength. The value of faith is in its object. Does that make sense? The value of faith is not in its strength. There's no inherent value in my faith. The value of my faith is all in the one in whom I have faith. But the question that matters is not, how strong is your faith? The question that really matters is, in whom is your faith? I've decided today, I have decided not just to follow Jesus, I've decided to entrust all my money Every last dollar, every last cent to Sam Chen sitting back there. He gets it all. As of today, I'm committing my financial future entirely to that one man. 
Put your hand up if you think that's a good idea. I see one hand, two hands, three, four, five. I don't trust any of those people. Now put your hand up if you think that's a terrible idea. Ah, a lot of fence-sitters. You see, I could have a strong faith, but in the wrong person, and that faith would be, that'd be dumb faith, wouldn't it? It'd be stupid. It'd be foolish. But I could have a weak but genuine faith in the right person, and that faith would actually be wise. Now, which category Sam falls into, I'll leave for you to decide. What does it mean that everything is possible for the one who believes? It means that everything is possible for Jesus. He alone has the power and He is the object of our faith. Faith is that bridge between our powerlessness and God's power. So when we put our faith in His plans, in His purposes, when we acknowledge that Jesus alone has the power, there is nothing we cannot do because there is nothing that He cannot do. It's not somehow uncapping our capacity, it is acknowledging His power. But just like us, this father's faith is far from perfect, isn't it? I love verse 24. Look at how he prays. I do believe. Full stop. No. Help my unbelief. Notice in verse 22, the father prayed, help us. Help my unwell son. But now he prays for the help he really needs. Not help us but help my unbelief. Notice, he has faith and yet he doesn't. His faith is genuine and yet it's weak. His faith is certain and yet it seems so conflicted. People often tell me, Adam, I just wish, I just wish I had a stronger faith. Then I wouldn't struggle anymore. If only I had a stronger faith, then I wouldn't struggle with sin. If only I had a stronger faith, then I wouldn't struggle with fear, temptation, doubt or regret. If only I had a stronger faith. Man, we can all empathise with that, can't we? Let me tell you why I love this prayer. It shows us that true faith is always marked by weakness. True faith always has a hint of weakness about it. It's ironic, isn't it, right? It it, it is possible to assume that our faith is something that we produce. That if I generate a strong enough faith, then I won't have to feel weak or dependent anymore. Finally, I can stop struggling. I can stop spiritually limping and start spiritually sprinting. But pause for a moment. At that point, are we simply striving for a faith so strong that it might no longer be faith at all? Are we confusing a strong faith in Jesus with just spiritual self-reliance? Not not true faith, think about it, it means total trust and dependence. And, And this father, my gosh, look at how dependent he is. He's so dependent that he even needs Jesus to provide the faith that he does not have. Faith isn't a power that we produce. It's a gift that God provides. True faith actually depends on God for its own power. And if that's true, then the stronger our faith in God, the more heavily we lean on Him. 
The stronger our faith in God, the more heavily we lean on Him. You see, a life of faith is a life of constant dependence. And in that sense, it's a life of constant weakness. Walking with Jesus means walking through life with a limp. It means walking through life always leaning on Him. Now I know, that that might sound terrible to some of you. Why in the world would I want to limp through life? No, I want to be strong. I I don't want to be weak. I suppose you're right. Unless, of course, you don't have the power. You see, it's only when he reaches the point of total powerlessness that this father sees the freedom of faith in Jesus. You see, when we depend on Jesus, we don't have to depend on ourselves anymore. There's a remarkable freedom in it. We don't have to trust in a power that we simply do not have. No, we can trust in the power that Jesus gives. I do believe Help my unbelief. That should be the prayer of every Christian every day. Well, what happens when this father casts his lot in with Jesus? What happens when he fully trusts in this king, even with all of his weaknesses and imperfections? Jesus works his power for our good. Look at verse 25, what does he do? He rebukes the unclean spirit and commands him, come out of him and never enter him again. I will draw you as poison is drawn from a wound. But the evil spirit does not go quietly. If he could talk, he would simply say, if I go, the boy dies. And that's exactly what it looks like. The spirit leaves the boy, but in verse 26, his body becomes like a corpse. So that many say, He's dead. You see, on the outside, it looks like the evil spirit is one. It looks like Jesus has no power greater than his disciples. It looks like Jesus is just like them, that Jesus does not have the power. But look now at what Jesus does. He doesn't just heal this boy. No, no, he does something far greater than that. He resurrects him. Just notice the language of verse 27. But, but Jesus, taking him by the hand, raised him and he stood up. Friends, this is resurrection language. That, that verb, he stood up, is literally, he rose, he resurrected. The very same word that the New Testament uses to describe the resurrection of Jesus. Can you see what's happening here? Jesus is exercising his power to do something far greater than merely heal this young boy. He's not even exercising a greater power over the forces of darkness. No, he's exercising the greatest power over the forces of death. He's making the dead live again. This is not merely healing power. It's not even saving power. No, this is resurrection power. And it's a preview of what Jesus himself will experience. You see, just like this young boy, Jesus will die. And it won't simply be a physical death. No, he will endure something far greater and something far darker. He will suffer the wrath of God for the sins of the world, the spiritual judgment of God poured out on this one man. 
And on the outside, it will look like Jesus has lost, like hope is gone, like evil has won. But the very same resurrection power which raised this young boy, can I tell you, it will raise Jesus as well. Three days after physically dying, Jesus will rise from the grave and defeat the power of death. The dying and rising of this young boy points to the dying and rising of Jesus himself. And Jesus died and rose so that, get this, you and I might die and rise with him. This young boy, here's a picture of what Jesus will do for all of us who have faith in him. The king with power over life and death will give us his resurrection power. He will die to bury our old lives that were at war with God. And he will rise to give us new lives that are reconciled to God. And all we have to do, all we have to do to receive that resurrection power is to pray in faith. That's why in verse 29 Jesus tells his disciples, this kind, that is freedom from sin and evil, can come out by nothing but prayer. What did the disciples have in chapter 6 that they do not have now? What, well, how have they gone so far wrong now, three chapters on? They did not pray. They did not have faith. You see, prayer is the greatest expression of our faith in God. Prayer empties ourselves of all pretense of power. It casts ourselves on the power and the promises of God. I just love what Henri Nouwen writes about prayer. Prayer is a way of being empty and useless in the presence of God and so of proclaiming our basic belief that all is grace and nothing is simply the result of hard work. Isn't that beautiful? Prayer is a way of being empty and useless in the presence of God. Depending on your pride, those words will sound terrible or those words will sound beautiful. But they're beautiful words. They're freeing words. I don't need to be full. I don't need to be useful. No, I can be what I am. I can be empty. I can be useless in the presence of God. I can believe that everything that God gives is grace. I can accept that none of my hard work will ever amount to anything. No, friends, if we pray in faith, if we pray for faith, then God will give us His resurrection power. He will give us a whole new life with Him. If you're not a Christian, you need to hear this very clearly. There is one prayer, there is one prayer that God will always answer yes to. Please save me. Please forgive me. He may not heal your sickness. He hasn't promised that. He may never restore your health. He hasn't promised that either. But He will give you what you need far more than anything else. He will give you His resurrection power. He will give you a new life, a second chance and a fresh start. And all you have to do, all you have to do is cry out to Him in faith. All you have to do is to trust Him to save you. All you have to do is to pray from the genuineness of your heart, God, I do believe. 
help my unbelief. You see, friend, your prayer may be weak. Your faith may be feeble. But if it be genuine, and if it be dependent, God will not turn you away. This father has a son, and his son has a problem. But this father has no power to save his son. And some of you here might actually empathise very deeply with this father. You might have a child who you worry for every day, but you do not have the power to help them. You might have a brother who walked away from Jesus long ago, but you do not have the power to bring him back. You might have a sister who simply doesn't see her need for Jesus, but you don't have the power to open her eyes. You might have parents who have hard hearts toward Jesus, but you know you don't have the power to change them. And let's face it, you've tried it all, haven't you? You've sent them sermons to listen to. You've given them books to read. You've even brought them to church and countless evangelistic events. But what this father said of the disciples can so easily be said of us, can't it? After all of that, all the conversations, all the pleading, all the podcasts, all the books, after everything we've tried, we do not have the power. But Jesus does. We cannot raise the dead. But Jesus can. This kind can come out by nothing but prayer. You see, for all the plans that we might have to see our loved ones saved from sin, I wonder, are we praying as much as planning? Are we on our knees every day praying in faith that God might work His resurrection power to do what only He could ever do? To raise the dead to life. Augustine, or Augustine, depending on your pronunciation, was an African bishop from the 4th century. He's one of the greatest theologians in the history of the church. But in his teenage years, he walked away from Jesus and he pursued a life of pagan pleasure. Augustine was, by any standard, a sex addict. Listen to this prayer. He once prayed this, Grant me chastity and continence, but not yet. In his confessions, he writes, the frenzy gripped me and I surrendered myself entirely to lust. You see, as far as wretched sinners go, Augustine was chief among them. And yet, for all the years that he wandered from God and pursued pagan pleasure of this world, his mother, Monica, never stopped praying for her son. Let me ask, what's the longest you've ever prayed for someone? A week? A month? A year? Monica prayed for her son for 17 years. 17 years she prayed that her son might return to the Lord. She later told her son, there was only one reason and one reason alone why I wish to remain a little longer in this life. And it was to see you, to see you become a Christian. And after 17 long years, 
through the prayers of his mother. He did. You see, she understood what Jesus says here in Mark 9. This kind can come out by nothing but prayer. And she is a model for us who so long to see our sons and daughters, our fathers and mothers, our brothers and sisters return to the Lord, risen to new life, saved into the family of God. 17 years. Just imagine at year nine how she must be feeling. I do believe. Help my unbelief. Will you be like Monica? Will you pray? Will you pray in faith? Will you pray that God will give faith to those we love? Will you pray that God will give them His resurrection power? Will you pray that God will do what only God can ever do? Will you pray for them and for ourselves? I do believe Help my unbelief. Let's do just that now. I'm going to pause for a moment and in silence of your hearts, if you're not a believer, why not pray that prayer before our God and ask Him to save you? I do believe. Help my unbelief. And for those of us who do trust in Jesus, why don't you take the next moment to bring before God a father or mother, brother or sister, son or daughter, a dear friend who you long to see receive that resurrection power. Our Saviour, our Redeemer, Jesus. You alone have resurrection power. You're the only one who's ever done it. You alone can rescue. And you alone can save. So this day we entrust ourselves to you. This day we place our faith in you. And this day with a faith so feeble, a trust so weak, a dependence so fragile, we cry out to you, Father, we do believe, but help our unbelief. We know we are powerless, but we know Jesus has all the power. And so it's in his name that we bring these things before you, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen.